right, so here's what I want to say. I love Christmas. So, I'm sorry, I didn't do it right. Merry Christmas. That's pretty good. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I love it. They did it at the party last night, and they did it in a way where they, they were, the, a group of people were really silent. The 20s were really silent, silent. And on the third one, they just let it rip. <laughs> so that was perfect. All right. So what I'm saying is, is I love Christmas. I love the lights. I love the colors. I, isn't that just gorgeous? I mean, when, when would you ever do that? It's a little bit like this. You know, it gets dark at 4 o'clock now, in case you haven't noticed, Okay. And, and, it's, and so what we do is we beat back the darkness with Christmas lights, right? We turn this negative into a positive because all of a sudden you get to see all this beauty. I mean, if you did this in summer, you wouldn't see it until midnight, right? Okay, poor Australians in Christmas. I don't know what they do. But, but bottom line, you see all of this color and this beauty. I love the houses. I love doing the houses up. And I, gotta, I think that's one of the most, have you ever seen anything like that before? Isn't that incredible? I have to say, I'm even good for the gaudy ones, okay? You know what I'm saying? And, you know, the ones, I was going to throw you a clip or two, you know, where it was just like, you know, sucking all the energy of Las Vegas into one house as it pulsed, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But, but really, of course, it's not so much about the lights and stuff. It's about the people. Right? It's about getting together with people. It's about all of the times and the things, and everybody's ready, and they're doing these kinds of things. And last night at our parties, I think, is that the first one? At our parties, uh, you know what I mean? This one I think is Lee's. Uh, so, and then this is ours and just part of the people that were there. And, and I, lo- I, I had to capture this in a funny way because, Becca Joe, I, I couldn't get it to download. You've got some setting on it. Okay, but they're here, sitting there singing and having a blast. And, you know, I just love this. I was going to do the voices for you, but let's be, let's be just really honest and brutal and loving with each other. It's better just the visual, okay? No, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> all right. All right, and here's the south end, all right? Just, just you know, like lots of fun and love and people getting together and doing things and being generous, right? I mean, this is the time of year. It's not every time of year that you're thinking about give, give, give. If you have a gift of giving, then yeah, you do. But most people, this is the time of year when you think about what can I get for that person? What can I give generously to do, to help, to bless, okay? And it just, it just kind of, does that just sum it up right there or what? Right? I mean, I mean we're, we're right in the wheelhouse right there, aren't we? Right? And so what we get is, we get that this is all coming from what Jesus did for us. This is where it happened. This is the wellspring of it, the foundation. And it's glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And you see that picture and you see that, don't you? And, and you, you hear other times that the angels say, look, the virgin will conceive a child and she'll give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This idea that what happened was is that God, God, whom we had offended, whom we brought pain to by making choices that walked away from the good gifts that he had for us, by choosing our own directions. I always say, always remember, when you see Jesus on the cross bloodied, what that's trying to communicate is, is this is the pain that it causes God when we walk in another way. This is the, this is, it's the physical manifestation of a spiritual reality, right? 
And so what happens is, is that God is doing these things. God came and he took upon himself the penalty that was due, the consequences of the decision. We made a decision to separate ourselves, and Jesus allows himself to be separated for that moment in whatever way it was. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross. And so we understand that ultimately what this is about is the greatest gift ever, right? But I do want to say something. As Christians, we always think it's Jesus on the cross is the greatest gift ever. From our standpoint, that's a little, uh, you know, anthropomorphic. It's, it's uh, you know, it's centric, right? It's, I, I, if you really think about something, there's actually something that I don't know if you could, you could argue it both ways, but I want you to think about something that would be every bit as great as Jesus on the cross. And that is Jesus become one of us. Uh, just think about it for a second. How big is God? By the way, is that the greatest house decorator for Christmas lights ever or what? <laughs> right? I mean, Jesus knows how to decorate a house, right? With the pulsing lights and the whole thing, right? And the energy of Las Vegas times trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions, right? So this is infinite God. Every time you see this today, I want you to think infinite God. God, maker of the universe. This is an actual picture. And it's, you can, the Milky Way sits in the middle there because of, we're peering out of it. And this is an actual picture of the known universe is what we call it. And this is the image that Hubble has taken. And by the way, they're about to send up another one that is like, what is it, eight times bigger or something like that. And it's going to be phenomenal what we're going to see from that. And the glory of God will just be manifest that much more. But the bottom line is, when you see this, I want you to think about what it was that that God became man. Because think about that for just a second. C.S. Lewis said it this way in a post that I made to, uh, this week. He said, if you want to understand a little bit of what it was like for God to become man, think of yourself becoming a slug. <laughs> Would you want to do that? Does that seem attractive? <laughs> does that seem like a, does it seem also kind of hard? How do you do this? How do you, how do you fit? How does God do this? And in fact, the scriptures say it this way in what is going to be key for us today. You must have, you must have. He's saying what Jesus did is what we do. We're made in his image, right? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And again, the, the cross we get, but I just want you to see just the act of him becoming man is a humbling. It's a laying down. It's a, it's a taking infinite and trying to put it into finite. Do you see it? How do we do that, and what are we supposed to do about that? I want to tell you there's a secret to be found in that. It's not so secret, but there's an insight to be found in that that will absolutely change every single thing about our walk with God. And interestingly, it is the thing that God is trying to get our attention on, has been for about eight years, seriously has kicked it into high gear recently. 
because there's a season that we're facing right now. Just like it's Christmas season, and this is going to last how many more weeks? And then it's over. Now it'll come back again, but you can't do Christmas in February. Not right anyway. You can't. Once the season is gone, it's gone. So what I want you to understand is this thing that God is trying to get us to get is not, uh, it is optional in the sense that he gave you free will, but it's critical. It would be like saying, God gave us the Christmas gift and I choose not to receive it. I choose not to enter into what he has given. And the point is he gave it for a reason. In Christmas it was to save. In our lives right now, I'm proposing to you that literally our future hangs in the balance. I don't mean to over whatever when I say that, but I really do mean, I think that there's a moment happening right now which is critical, and we're either going to get a hold of it, and some will, and some won't. And the ones that don't for a long time are not going to know that there was a problem with that. But the ones that do, when he does what he's going to do, what's going to happen will be an entirely different experience. So this is important. Just like Jesus coming to earth is not just about Christmas and fun and parties. There's something critical at the heart of it. God coming to be with us. Not just with us as in humankind, but actually in us. There's something that's that important that we're doing right now today. So who's our prayer? Oh, Kay Kinsey's. This is so awesome. Kay, um, Kay is herself a pillar in this church. And Kay, I don't mean to make you cry right before you do this, but when you walk out of here today, you need to walk over to that chapel over there and see a sign on there that says the Ron Kinsey's Memorial Chapel. And that is her husband. And Kay and Ron were absolutely first pillars in this church. And everything that has happened, happened in part because you guys stood up and said yes, stood up and went after the Lord. It was Ron that walked this property way before I had any desire to even think about it. And he said, this is where God has us. So, Kay, would you pray for us? There's a perfect I don't person. know if I can now. Yeah, I know. Thank you very much. <laughs> I know. Father God, we just thank you for this day. Lord, I just thank you for your peace and your presence that you desire to bring to each and every one of us. Lord, I thank you for the presence that you brought through your willingness to come as a baby. But Lord, I thank you for the presence that you desire to give each and every one of us every moment of every day. And Lord, as we enter into this season, may we see your fingerprints and not miss opportunities Amen. to come to know you better or to bless others. Father, we give you all the glory. Father, I just pray for Kurt. I ask, Lord, that what you have spoken to him would be clearly communicated, that our eyes would be open and our ears and our hearts ready to receive that which you have. And, Lord, I pray for Cascade Community and Monroe Amen. that they also would be experiencing Amen. a deeper meaning of your presence as we walk into this season that is set aside to recognize who you are. Amen. A perfect prayer. Thank you, Kay. As God has been doing for a long time, and this is years and years and years, we'll be in a scripture, and the scripture that he has us in is the one for the season. So we've been in Rich Man and Lazarus. 
I'm going to read you just the first part of that, just in case you haven't heard it before. We're not talking about the first part of it. We're talking about the end of it when this very enigmatic statement is made. So just to get everybody on the same page, Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open wounds. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. And the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he's here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Now here's the part that we're looking at. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham. And, and right, right? You, you're telling me that all they got is this book and this story that somebody told them. No. But, but somebody raises from the dead. That they're going to believe. But now look what he says. If someone has said to them from the dead, they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone raises from the dead. Now, I want us to think about that for a second. This is actually happening now. This dynamic is happening now. We have in our world, thanks to Gutenberg, everybody has access to Bibles. The stories of Moses and the prophets and the stories of the New Testament. And it is very easy for anybody to get a hold and read those things and believe them. Or to do research on them if you're skeptical about them. Or to trust the testimony of somebody else. Or to, or to, or to. There's all, God is moving in the world. You can always remember, always remember this. God never proves himself, but he always gives us opportunity and reason to believe. But he never proves himself. He wants you to have free will, and you get to exercise it. And so what he does, and what the, the question that we're really asking today is, what's the difference between the person who would believe and the person who doesn't? Well, let's be clear. Ultimately, being a good Reformed person like I am, it has to do with God having made me new. But there is nonetheless still something in here that we need to get a hold of. Watch this. What is the difference between the person who hears the good news about Jesus? By the way, I want to say something. I am a good Reformed person who absolutely and totally believes in free will. Genuine free will, not the fake free will that the Reformed people try and make it out to be. So having said that, I'm really good Reformed, only I wouldn't be allowed into one of their conventions with the way that I think. Okay? What's the difference between a person who hears the good news about Jesus by someone telling them, or by reading it in Scripture, or whatever else? And they receive it so that they're changed forever versus the person who hears or reads or even sees what happens in the lives of other people that they love. And they're telling them, this is what Jesus did. And, and the person is saying, ah, no, I can explain it some other way. See it? What's the difference between the person that believes and the one who never ends up actually receiving and understanding what God is trying to show them? What's the difference? And it comes out of 
If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone raises from the dead. Let's just take this first one first. We have a Bible and we have a story about Jesus in that Bible. We also have, at the same time as Jesus lived, we have guys named, guys that were Caesars. And somewhat in that same time frame, we have philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, so on. Now, all of these people were 2,000 years ago. Why do, we, why do we absolutely believe that there was a Caesar, but wonder if there was a Jesus? Why can some people be skeptical about Jesus' even existence? Because here's the point. The same way that we know that Caesar was real, any of the Caesars, the same way that we know the Caesars were real is precisely the same way that we know that Jesus was real. In other words, if you objectively take the evidence as found in written literature and archaeological finds and all this kind of stuff, you will end up with as much, in fact, you will end up with more proof that Jesus existed than you will that Caesar's existed, and that there are still people in the world today that will say Jesus didn't exist. But that's, that's child's play compared to what we're going to right now. Jesus rose again from the dead. Now just watch. There's one heart that says, is that true? and is willing to research it. There's another heart that says, that cannot be possibly true. That cannot possibly be true. And so they don't research it. Now, here's the point. Now, I'm, I'm being totally serious about this. I'm not going to spend time on it because I've talked about it before. And I'll talk to anybody who wants to talk to me about it if they want. But here's the point. Using the same methodology that we use to verify that there were certain Caesars that lived and certain philosophers and so on, using the same historical tools to verify the, the, the truth or falsehood of a certain thing, there is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there is that any one of the Caesars actually existed. There is more historical proof for that proposition if you don't believe me, it's okay. Talk to me, I'll show you, okay? There's lots of different resources out there. It, but the problem is, see, we don't do that because what we do is we have a priori's. We have these biases. And the a priori that we bring to it is you can't raise from the dead, right? You can swoon. You cannot really be dead. So some people think that way. And you get all the different issues. But we're not talking about that. What I just want to say is, is right now he said if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone raises from the dead. Well, here's the point. We have incredible proof that Jesus rose from the dead. Among that is this. This is just one of them. Christ died for our sins. This is Paul now. This is what was, this is what was okay. Christ died for our sins just as Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as Scripture said. Now look at what he's doing right here. He's saying, not only did this thing actually happen, but it was foretold. Caesars were not foretold. When they happened, they happened. That was it. The things that happened to Jesus were foretold and then they happened. So that even makes it more incredible. This thing was foretold and then it happened. But now watch this. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12, and after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You know what, what is remarkable about the historical literature of the time, which there is much, what is remarkable is that nobody came out and disputed Paul in this, because they couldn't, because there were 500 people that were walking around, or 500 minus a few, that were walking around and saying, I saw him risen again. I saw that. You can tell me whatever you want to tell me, but I saw him. 
<laughs> you see what I'm saying? Now here, now right there, now watch this. Right there. If somebody came to you and said, I saw Jesus risen again, wouldn't you go, wow, I need to check it out. Think about it. Did they do that even in that day? When they could talk to the ones who saw it? They didn't, did they? The vast majority of people, even though they were being told by these people that they had seen him and had listened to him, they didn't believe. So it's true, isn't it? If you have a certain something about you that isn't going to believe, you're not going to believe, even if someone raises from the dead. Do you see it? And he goes on and he says, you know, was seen by James and later by all the apostles, last of all those who have been born in the wrong time. Paul is saying, I saw him. <laughs> You don't believe all these testimonies about other people? Believe me. I saw him. I was kicked up into heaven and I talked with him. <laughs> well, I don't believe that, Paul. Fine. But on what basis? Right? You don't have to just go to history again. There are lots of people in this room that believe and have had Jesus do things. And you've gone to friends, family, neighbors, co-workers and so on and you said Jesus did this for me did they believe did they go wow I want to know about him <laughs> is that what they did no why because they enthroned themselves above the evidence I don't believe that somebody can raise from the dead I don't believe that Jesus is God. I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't, whatever it is that I don't want to believe, you have free will, and you can believe anything you want to believe. But the bottom line is, it doesn't make it false. It just makes you somebody who hasn't looked at the evidence, or, now watch, you have a loved one who is telling you, Jesus did this in my life. And here's what you're really saying to them when you don't believe. You're saying back to them, I don't believe you. I think you're wrong. And I'm not saying you're a liar. Oh, I shouldn't be pointing at you, should I now? I'm pointing over here. I think you're deceived. Something happened, and I get that you thought that it was this, but it wasn't really this. It was really that. You see it? You see, all of a sudden, in this little verse right here, we've got this principle that's working, and we're, as we dig into it, and as we start to unearth it, we start to see something. There is something of a predisposition, an a priori in philosophical terms, there is something of a predisposition to things that we bring in that color, rose-colored glasses, that color how we see, interpret, and understand things. Do you see that? And you can put on ones that say, you can put on ones that say, I believe everything, and then you're also a fool. You can put on things that say, I don't believe anything, and then you're also a fool. Or you can put on glasses that say, I'm going to do my best to understand these things as well as I can, and I'm going to go with the best evidence that I can find. I'm going to go with the best proof that I can find. I'm going to go with the best reasoning that I can find. Christianity is not a unintellectual or a blind thing. God gave us brains, and he expects us to use them, and we do. And we use them in pursuit of coming to know him more deeply. Right? Having said that, what I want us to do is to understand something. What people who don't believe would say is, is this is good, this is, Kurt, it's so simple to fix. God just has to show me. Now I would say back, 
Jesus walked on water and fed 5,000 people and did all these miracles, and then people came to him and said, prove to us that you're God. And, you know, Jesus could have turned around and says, well, how about the walking on the water? Does that do it for you? How about the feeding 5,000? How about, is that going to work for you? But what he does, he doesn't do that. And the reason why he doesn't do that is because of this thing that we're talking about right now. There's a problem that God has. And the reason why he did free will, and this is, this is just, I just, you know, catch this part, okay? This is God. And here's what God wants to do. Can you come up? Yeah, yeah, come up. Here's what God wants to do. Okay, I'm not going to embarrass you. Don't worry. I'm not telling the truth, of course, but, you know. All right, now. Now watch. Here's what God wants to do. Everything that you know, everything that you think, everything that you have. Here's what God is trying to do, actually. He's that. He's trying to pour that into this. In Christmas, what we talk about is Jesus emptied himself and came down. Geppetto, the maker, became Pinocchio, the wood doll. Jesus came down to pay for our sins. But that wasn't the end of it, was it? What was he actually trying to do? It wasn't just to save us. It was to bring us into that. It's to bring us into things we haven't even thought or imagined. He's trying to pour He's trying to give. He's trying to bless. He's trying to take everything that he is. He's not just coming down to us. He comes down to us to get us and bring us up to him. It's not Geppetto going down to Pinocchio and staying a wood figure. Geppetto's going down to Pinocchio to make him more like Geppetto, to bring him up and out. Do you see it? To bring him in. See it? Thank you. Love you. This is a very cool guy, okay? Now, this is, this is super important because here's what I want you to understand. Here's, what, here's the problem that Jesus is faced with, and he showed it to us in Scripture. Here's what he said. I would love to pour out everything to you, but here's the problem. It actually hurts you. If you're not the right kind of vessel... Me pouring myself into you actually damages you. How do we know that? Is that true? Thus says the Lord. Now, he's talking to the king of Tyre technically, but very quickly he goes into language that clearly has to do with another being, the being that is behind the king of Tyre and his fall and his pride and his problem, and that is Satan. So here, this is a verse about Satan, and God is telling us, revealing us something about that he had a problem. Remember, God made the angels, and he loved the angels, just like he loves us. He loves his created beings. But they didn't have a free will about whether or not God exists, do they? Because they see him all the time. (laughs) There's no question in their minds about that. And what happened was, thus says the Lord, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. He's saying this to Satan. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onks, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbonate. Crafted in gold were your settings and your, ear, and your engravings. On the day that you were created, you were prepared. Now listen, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. That's saying right here in me, in my presence. 
Now, the word that we're going after is anointed. What does anointed mean? I give you a part of myself so that I can do through you what I want. Remember? Infinite God pouring out into a person in order to do what he wants, in order for you to be able to enjoy it, in order for you to be able to be part of it. This is what he's doing. You were the anointed cherub. God gave a part of himself to this Lucifer, morning star, Satan, because he loved him. And what happened? You were blameless in your ways from the days you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence. Now that harkens back to Tyre, but in the abundance of your commerce, in the abundance of your interactions, in the abundance of the things that were happening with you relationally, there was violence found in you and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. What did he do? This is Isaiah, same thing. How you are fallen, O heaven, O star. Uh, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations down. Now here it is. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, above the other angels. I will set my throne on high. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like most high. But you are brought down the shoal, the furthest reaches. Now here's what he said. Here's what he's saying. I gave you a part of myself that made you unique. It does. When it happens to you, it makes you unique. But there's two ways that you can react to it. One way is, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> it's hard for me to get to my knees anymore. <laughs> I hope not. All right. But you can say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Look what you have done. This is amazing. This is incredible. This is miraculous. This is magnificent. This is incredible, right? <laughs> the other thing you can say is, I'm more than you guys now. I'm like, God, worship me. That's the violence that was found in him. By the way, let's be really clear here about what the problem is. What does God want to give us? Infinity. Himself. When Satan says, I'm like, God, worship me, the problem with that in God's eyes is, what can Satan give you? Only a pale imitation. It's to your harm. It, it's, it's, not, it's not anywhere near what God can do. Do you see it? So what's happening is, what he's saying is, he's, this whole thing, what God did with the angels is this, right here. He said, I have a problem. I'm the rich uncle that can't give money to my nephews and nieces without it destroying them. But I still want to give it to them. <laughs> so I've put something out there. And what I've put out there is, is, are you going to be the kind of vessel that can handle this? And it will drive you to your knees in thanksgiving so that I can give you more. So you can enter into more. So I can give you more so you'll enter into more. Or are you going to be the kind of person who's going to get puffed up in yourself? You're going to enthrone yourself, which is to your harm. You see it? John the Baptist says it this way, he must increase, I must decrease. In me, in the world, 
He must increase, and the only way that he can increase is if I will get out of the way. <laughs> Internally, externally. If I will decrease, then that leaves a void that he loves to fill with who he is. All of what we're talking about right here is, is are you going to be the kind of person that will humble yourself and pray? Are you going to be the kind of person that when God does something through you, it will drive you to your knees in thanksgiving? Or are you going to be the kind of person who will get puffed up? Now, this is not abstraction for, what is it? How long have we been in Luke now? Does anybody have any idea? Can anybody count back that far? I think we're in the second generation of people in this church that have been going through Luke, right? So you'd have to talk to your grandparents about when we started it, okay? But, but the point is we've been in there for years and you do realize that this is the heart of the message what I'm talking about right now. Because here's what God says he wants to do. This is just some of the gifts he wants to give us. This is 1 Corinthians 12. Let me just, a word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. God wants to give us that, and that's just a spectrum. He wants to give us that and so much more. He wants to give us from his infinity, from his infiniteness. This is what he wants to give, right? But now watch this. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, that's not for you. It's a gift. You have to give it, right? That's only, only. You get the word of wisdom, but it's for somebody else. It's a word for you. So as soon as that happens, you're blessing somebody else. Now, everybody wants that. Faith, who doesn't want faith to move a mountain? Who doesn't want healing? Who doesn't want to do miracles? My gosh. And I don't mean just for the circusy, showy thing. We can get rid of that one real quick. I mean, you've got people that are in need, that are dying, you want a miracle. You want a healing, right? Prophecy. Distinguishing of spirits. You want this stuff. Tongues. I don't want that. I don't. Let's be clear. Now, I do. But I only do because of one thing. Watch this. Now, just follow me here for a second. This is what, right? This is what we're seeing about moving in power. See, whenever we say moving in power, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and what can be more powerful than the Holy Spirit? So you understand this can corrupt you. You understand it corrupted the Corinthians. They were moving in all the gifts, and by the way, the one that they were moving in the most wrongly was what? Tongues, because they took it as a thing of pride. They were literally talking to each other in tongues as much, best we can figure out. They were talking to each other in tongues as if I'm more spiritual than you are because I can talk in tongues and understand what the person's saying. And Paul comes at the beginning of the chapter and says, you don't understand what they're saying. Nobody does. <laughs> this is ridiculousness. You've missed the point of the gift. The point of the gift is all of these other gifts, you do word of wisdom, you do a healing with somebody, I'm just telling you, the first time you do it, you don't, don't do anything but thank God. The tenth time you do it, nothing but thanking God. The thousandth time you do it, there is this little thing that creeps into you. I'm getting pretty good at this. And you become a blockage for the infinite, the more that God wants to pour through you. Not just now to your harm, but now to somebody else's too. See it? Here's the thing. The natural man, the natural mind does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. They're spiritually appraised. Here's why I love tongues more than any of those nine gifts. 
Tongues is the one that drives me to my knees because it's foolishness to my natural mind. And it's a way of saying, I know quite a lot. I've studied a lot. I've ministered a lot. I've got a lot of experiences. I've got a lot of stuff I could lean on. And every single one of the things that I lean on when I'm trying to do something that God wants me to do is getting in the way of God doing what he wants to do. All of it. It doesn't mean he won't call on it and use it in his way. But if I do it in my, in my natural mind, what I think, then they're getting what I know, and that isn't okay. For them, for me, for anybody. What we're trying to do is get to the place to where we are genuinely driven to our knees and saying, just as it says in Scripture, the Holy Spirit helps in our weaknesses. We don't know what God wants us to pray for. You ever done that? I don't know. I'm praying this. Okay. The Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. The Father who knows the hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads with believers in harmony with God's own will. What you do not know, he does. And he is praying God's heart through you so that you can get ultimately lined up. Right? That's what tongues is. I like tongues because it literally, every time I pray in tongues, what I'm saying to myself is, is my natural mind is going to get in the way and I need to push it down. I must decrease. When I decrease, he can fill the void. <laughs> he can fill the space. He increases. I must decrease. This is what he is trying to say to us as Christians right now. I'm telling you the infinite God has come into our world right now and he is doing something extraordinary right now. Here's what he's doing. He is smashing lives, smashing culture, smashing politics, smashing your understanding of who you are, smashing everything that you used to lean on. He's smashing everything that you used to depend upon. He's smashing every, every stupid little formula that you idolized and made it easier for you to think about something. He is taking everything away. This is what he's doing in our world right now. Just, just, I'm sorry, I don't mean to get too exercised about this, but I'm telling you, this is just, this is wheelhouse stuff for me right now. Think about politics. It's the one that still, thank God it's not as fresh as it was a couple of weeks ago, but it's still fairly fresh, right? God has smashed politics. Here's, I, I talked about right and left and progressive and conservative a couple of weeks ago, and watch that on YouTube if you want, but that's not what we're doing today. Here's what I want to show you. People that are liberal or progressive in here think that the conservatives are all happy about Trump winning. They are not. They are not. It was, it, was, it was two really difficult choices. It's called a dilemma. The proper definition of dilemma is two bad choices. Now, you may love Hillary and you may love Trump. I don't care. That what I'm saying is there is no such thing as a conservative Christian right now because it's smashed. I was at lunch with two of my best friends. We were talking about politics. Normally, at any time that we would be at lunch, we would, all be, we would be so in sync with each other about what we believed and thought that we'd be essentially an echo chamber. You know what that is? You're just kind of saying what each other believes and building yourself up, right? And it would have been an echo chamber. It would have been fun. There would have been some slight differences, but nothing so as to offend or to, or to make somebody feel nervous about you or anything like that. But we're sitting at lunch before Trump was elected. And we're having to be a little careful about what we say because these three people who would normally be in a very similar camp with one another, there were so many fracture and fault lines going through everything that there was no simple little formula on which you could all lean. We had to be careful about what we were saying to one another. 
do not think that conservatives are sitting here in one camp. <laughs> you don't believe me? Just read Facebook. Read what the people in this church are actually saying. It's not just politics. I think that that's the one right now that really shows the smashing. But it's culture. How fast did everything change in the last few years? How fast did all of this stuff happen? Because it was just like, I was, I don't know, I turned away for a second and then it was all different. I mean, things are just changing. Things are just, and, and here's the point. Now watch. Oh God, help me say the words properly so that your heart comes forward. You can't even talk about things like same sex, which in one point in time, there would have been a fairly broad consensus and a thing on which we could all lean as conservative Christians, if we call ourselves that. <coughs> but you can't even do that anymore. Do you love these people? Because if you don't, you're not God. You're not right. I'm not saying that there isn't a problem. I'm not saying there's not an issue to be had there. But we're having to find out how to really walk in ways that the love is real. Because the help isn't real. The, the hand isn't real. The thing that God wants to do isn't real if the love isn't real. Because if you're not doing it in love, then you're what? A clanging symbol. You're an irritating noise. So even here, you can believe what you're going to believe, and you can think it, but you've got to find a new way to think about it that genuinely has love in it, that genuinely has something real in it to the point that it is affecting you, that it's changing you. Right? I mean, this is, right? How many more fault lines do we need? How about the church? Eight years we've been taking a sledgehammer to the church, trying to break it down, trying to figure out where is it, where is it failing. And what we're finding out is, is everywhere. And at the most fundamental levels, in the most fundamental ways. I mean, we're, you know, let's be, watch this, watch this. 2008, God says, I'm going I'm to blow up the church. By the end of 2010, he'd done it, okay? But do, real, do realize the economy has rebounded, and you do realize that an awful lot of churches that just took that as something that happened in the economy didn't see the Lord in it. They just, when the economy rebounded, so did their hiring, and they hired back the pastors and everything, and they're pretty much doing the same thing they did pre-2008. A lot of churches are doing this. But you know what? Thank God a lot of churches aren't. A lot of churches saw the Lord in it and said, God was trying to take a hammer to something that needed to be smashed because it wasn't accomplishing the fruit. It wasn't being the thing that he intended it to be, which is an instrument of love and of power, an instrument of the infinite God invading into finite spaces. You see it? And that's what we've been doing. We've been trying to raise people up and getting everybody to another level to where all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh. Right? Isn't this it? Is it? Because this is what I'm trying to do. This is everything that we're trying to do. Uh, on on the, who we are, watch this, two different ways of talking about it, a little too broad. Sin, what we do. Sin can also be what we don't do, right? In sin of omissions and so on. But I just want you to think about it. Here's what God has been destroying now for eight years in this church, that God cares about your sin. Now, God cares about your sin. He doesn't want you out there hurting yourself. He sees what it's doing and damage to you and, in, and all the things and everything else. But we do have to understand something. For eight years, God has been trying to say something as clearly as he could possibly say it in this church. You think I'm all concerned because you have this some besetting sin that you only know in your privacy, and you think that that's somehow alienating you from me. 
But let me make it clear, Jesus Christ died for that sin. And you just don't get grace. You don't understand grace. It doesn't mean you can go out and just sin any way you want to sin. This is Romans, right? Does, does what I'm saying about grace mean you should go out and sin more so that God can love you more? So that you can experience more of his love and his grace? No, of course not. That's stupid. But what does it mean? You don't understand grace. You don't understand. We don't understand grace. You don't understand. I've already paid for that sin that you did, even the ones that are coming. It doesn't give you license to do them. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying, but at the same time, do understand what's being said. Your sin isn't the problem. <laughs> he already took care of that. He made you new. It's old stuff. It's going into the dust. This is not what's defining your relationship with him. It's what you let define your relationship with him to your harm because Satan gets guilt and shame and all that kind of stuff going inside of you, and now you're in trouble because you're distancing yourself from God because that's what you think is happening. But God has been saying clearly that is not what's happening. I didn't go anywhere. I knew you before you were you, before there was a you. I knew you, all of it. Let's go to the one that I think is really the heart of it, the walk, what we don't do because we don't get it. Here's the thing that he's been saying to us loud and clear. Do you, do you hear this for the last almost a year? He's, and particularly when we got to the parables, when I started talking about you don't get it, 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 you don't get it. And because of that, you're not walking. You're not, you're not doing the things that I want you to do. You're not allowing yourself to become the vessels that I want you to become so that I can do what I want to do. There's a world out there that is greatly, greatly, greatly hurting. And he wants us to become instruments of his grace and love and mercy and power. And it's not just for people out there, it's us too. Right here on the inside. We're just, we're just wrecking ourselves by holding on to idols. Entertainment, finances, goods, services. Just everything, right? We're wrecking ourselves. This isn't condemnation that I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is God is trying to do something extraordinary. He's trying to say, do you know that I am infinite. Two conversations this last week. One with a guy about finances. Here's what his comment was. My finances are absolutely crappy. And I should be worried about it. But I'm not. Somehow God is making it work out. And there's this extraordinary thing that God is doing. Another one. A ministry. If I were to take any measurement at any other time, I would tell you right now we were in serious trouble in our ministry. But guess what? We're not only not in trouble, it's actually going pretty well. But I look at what's going on. I look at the situation. I look at the things and I go, I should be really worried about this. But something in my heart is telling me I'm not to be worried about this. I'm to be at peace with this, that God is doing something that God can do that goes beyond what I thought God could do. That goes beyond what I had God in his little box about. And he's blessing this, and it's actually going really well and beautifully. Do you see it? You see what he's trying to do? Right now, God is smashing your lives. The infinite God is smashing your lives. He's trying to smash them. If you don't feel smashed, it's because you're not admitting that you don't get it and not realizing how much you don't get it, and you're not really being honest about what a sinner you really are. That's the, that's the thing that we do right now, right? 
It's just, you know, we think, well, I stopped doing that besetting sin, but now. And what God is trying to say is, is, I want you to come into such deep understanding of what a sinner you are that it should just cripple you, except it doesn't because you know that my grace has already covered it. You know that I'm holding you. There's nothing that we can lean on. God is smashing everything that we could lean on. Why? Why is he doing this? So that we'll rely solely on the Spirit. He's taking away every little formula, conservative, progressive, cultural, church, personal, interior, exterior, He's trying to smash everything so that anything that we were leaning on, we begin to see as an idol. It was propping us up improperly. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, I want you to become people who are doing one thing, following me, <laughs> obeying me, searching for the Spirit in every situation, in every moment, every way. Is this true? I sat here and I asked the Lord, this is the sermon's over, I asked the Lord, what am I supposed to do to make this sticky? Because I always try to do something to get it into your heart so that you got a better chance of walking out of here and at lunch actually remembering it. You want to know what I got back? One of those pregnant pauses I get back from God every so often. Him saying the person that will bend their knee and humble themselves and will really get a hold of what's being said. It's going to resonate. It's going to go through their soul like a melody. And it's going to play on their heartstrings. Know that you're a sinner much larger than you, what you know. Know that you're a failure much larger than you know. Know that you are held by God much more than you know. Know that he wants to bless you in infiniteness much more than you could ever imagine. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we come before your throne right now. And we ask you to bring this thing home to us. These are just words, sound and fury, strutting about the stage. God, this needs to be real in our hearts. In Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm asking you, right now, would you please bring this down into our hearts, bring this down into our lives.